Welcome back, party people. I've returned with another podcast to help fix your existential crisis. At least that's what my guest, Brendan Graham Dempsey, who is a writer who focuses on the meaning crisis and the nature of spirituality in what he calls meta-modernity, the stage after postmodernism. And in this podcast, we're talking about postmodernism, nihilism, the meaning crisis and spiritual void of the modern world, and also the worldview beyond that, which is called meta-modernity, which there are signs all over the internet and the wisdom web, and a sort of emerging new culture uh, from the husk of the old one. And I think Brendan's work is deeply representative of that new movement, so I know that you're going to enjoy this conversation. Um, Some really good stuff in there. I would encourage you to check out Brendan's website or his Substack, uh, his YouTube channel, and all his links are in the description. My upcoming play in Dublin, Waiting for the Offo, coming this July to the 4th to the 8th, is nearly sold out of weekend tickets. There's only 20 or so left, I think, for both shows. So I would encourage, if you want to join us for that, to pick up uh, a ticket at the link in bio as well, so you don't miss out. But uh, without further ado, I'll get out of the way, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh. Thank you very much for joining me today, Brendan. Uh, I really appreciate you making time to have this conversation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, get into some of these cool topics. I'm very excited by your work, to be honest. Um, I've been watching a lot of your YouTube videos lately, and the idea of being post-postmodern kind of got me out of my seat uh, a little bit. And I felt like a certain um, thrill. Obviously, I'm an artist as well and a creative, and I do plays and um, wrote a book, short story. So the idea of an artistic movement beyond that as well is is very exciting. Um, but I wanted to start with, I suppose, what I consider to be the problem, maybe, uh, which is postmodernism and how you think about it, what it, what it is for you, and um, why is it so significant for people these days? Yeah, well, it's a big question, and it's gotten a lot of, um, I think, you know, meaningful attention over the past. Uh, you know, especially I'd say the last five to 10 years. Um, and it's kind of, it can be a little bit of a, a difficult topic to, to wrap your head around for lots of different reasons. One is that the term, uh, has different meanings in different contexts for folks. Um, even in sort of, you know, academic contexts, there's debates around these sorts of things. And, um, yeah, in general, a word like postmodernism kind of can mean a lot of different things for a lot of different people. Sometimes it's uh, the ultimate boogeyman. Sometimes it's just sort of a uh, an old academic paradigm. So um, it's a little bit of a uh, a catch all. Um, but I, that being said, I do really think that we can speak about it in meaningful ways that we're, we are really talking about something, uh, despite you know that there will be different ways of thinking about it, theorizing it and drawing boundaries around it and everything. Um, and yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, it does present a problem. Uh, at the same time, one of the things that I find really helpful about thinking uh, about various post postmodern or metamodern um, approaches is that it doesn't just treat it as a problem. It also treats it as um, something that uh, brings meaningful ideas to the table that we should kind of try to integrate. Um, so I think that that's an important framing as well, uh, especially because a lot of the times that people are talking about postmodernism, uh, it's it is usually held up in this sort of like boogeyman uh, presentation. It's sort of the uh, the catch-all for everything that's wrong about the world is postmodern, uh, and I, I'm sympathetic to that as well uh, in some ways because I get I get where people are coming from on that. But at the same time, I do want to emphasize that. Um, I think the most uh, productive approach and generative uh, and, and successful ultimately is is not just to negate postmodernism, but to move through and then beyond it. And so that's what I think characterizes a distinctly metamodern approach rather than other sort of just like reactions, responses, that sort of a thing. So um, in terms of, yeah, the problem um, of postmodernism, I think uh, one of the biggest things that comes out of postmodern thought is the the challenging of the assumptions about knowledge and about value, um, 
which again is uh, both helpful and depending on how far it gets taken, unhelpful, uh, and de especially depending on what people wind up doing with those challenges. Um, you know, you can think that <clears throat> you grow up and you're kind of inculcated with certain beliefs about the world and value that you just sort of take for granted, right? And then along comes this very critical deconstructive approach that sort of tries to kind of tear everything apart, deconstruct it, look behind everything, look for who might be deluding you, who might be, um, you know, trying to dominate you, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it becomes a very kind of um, cynical or skeptical approach to the world, um, which, um, you know, people, uh, I forget who coined the phrase, but the the, the phrase, the hermeneutics of suspicion um, <clears throat> comes up a lot in the context of talking about postmodernism, hermeneutics being how do we interpret things? How do we make sense of things, right? And so uh, certain kind of quintessentially postmodern thinkers uh, are, are characterized by the sort of herme hermeneutics of suspicion, um, trying to get every, uh, under everything to, to see the kind of dark, seamy underbelly of things uh, and, to, and to throw away our illusions and our comforting um, kinds of, you know, potentially delusions about reality. Um, and so uh, on the one hand, this can be very helpful um, because if we are being deluded, uh, if we are being, you know, uh, secretly or maybe even overtly dominated by other people, then it, 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 it's uh, incumbent upon us to try to become aware of this and then do something about it, right? Uh, unfortunately, though, um, a lot of this hermeneutics of suspicion in this postmodern way of thinking about the world uh, has tended to veer pretty heavily just in the direction of kind of total skepticism, total doubt, total cynicism, right? So that uh, in the end, nothing and no one can be trusted. Uh, everything's a power game. Uh, you know, all of your um, beliefs about the world are illusions and, uh, you know, just sort of uh, masks for power and domination, et cetera. And so ultimately, this 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 perspective can lead to a kind of worldview or a more global perspective on the world that is very, um, it's a dark way to kind of approach the world if that's sort of your main frame. And uh, I think that people are right when they identify that aspect of, of, of postmodernism. Uh, and so, you know, we see this a lot around us in society. We see, we, we're every day dealing with a lot of this um, cynicism, skepticism, um, and uh it can be very corrosive, very toxic, and especially at an individual level, you know, trying to make meaning in the world, trying to make sense of the world, um, trying to have values. Uh, it's almost like this postmodern uh, perspective can is just like an acid that just dissolves all of that. And so it leaves people in sort of uh, despair, nihilism, uh, chaos, et cetera. And so I think in, in summary, that's sort of like the problem of postmodernism and like, what do we do about that? That is, yeah, exactly. I mean, the I think it's a good point as well, mentioning the that there is important philosophical ideas there as well, and there's a reason why postmodern became the dominant position. It's not just like it's uh, just this imposition from above. There's causes there, I think, in terms of the loss of uh, a worldview that made sense of the world for us. Um, and that's something I suppose that you mentioned the cynicism and the kind of almost nihilism or the as the the logical outcome of postmodernism. Do you think that part of what's fueling the postmodernism as well is that sense of alienation and nihilism? You know, you sort of gravitate towards the philosophy that is, it's kind of a confirmation bias. Like you already feel alienated and nihilistic, so you're more likely to choose a philosophy that says that that's actually the way things are. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a good point. I'm sure there's a lot of that. Um, you know, the world is pretty messed up. <laughs> it's got a lot of problems and and there seems to be a proliferation of uh of problems. And so I think it does make a lot of sense that when people then are looking for answers, um there's something attractive about settling on a, a view of the world that um sh you know showcases and foregrounds the problems and the problematic nature of reality. Um so I think yeah, I think there is that. I mean, if you were to get into trying to diagnose why and how postmodernism became the sort of uh, dominant worldview, um, then uh, I think there's it's a that's a very complex question, and there's a lot of mm -hmm. factors in there. And it also it's it's very contextual too, right? Because dominant where you know it's like uh, not not yeah. 
not everywhere is the postmodern worldview uh, uh, dominant or an ascendancy even. Um, and so it's it's located in certain specific pockets of society. And you could do a whole now. And I mean, I'd be very happy if you want. We can talk about all that. Yeah. Um, but mm -hmm. uh, but it is it's it's a rather complicated sort of analysis. Yeah. That, uh, diagnosing the problem of like where it's come from. There was something I kind of wanted to zero in in terms of that mm -hmm. that actual question of like I was watching a recent talk by Peter Kreef on the Word on Fire Institute, I think, where he was comparing Augustine and Sartre and mm -hmm. uh, the difference that God makes in philosophy that Sark kind of started with this presupposition that there couldn't be a God mm. and built his philosophy on top of that. Whereas for Augustine, that was the first, you know, presupposition or the, the unhypothetical first principle mm. and the difference in the philosophy that that makes, I kind of wonder how much of the postmodernism, postmodern conundrum is the loss of that, you know, ultimate reality connection to ultimate reality. When you take that out, inevitably <laughs> you get this kind of, yeah, you know, goallessness, the collapse of a value hierarchy, which results in nihilism and despair, and hundred percent. And in fact, yeah, I have a um, I have a whole YouTube series uh on this topic. It's called After Postmodernism, and that is in some ways kind of the 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 diagnosis is um when you look at the different <laughs> people who are theorizing postmodernism, you know, people like David Harvey, uh, Frederick Jameson, and others, um, Fr John Francois Lyotard. There, a lot of what they're talking about is this sort of something's been lost. And a lot of what they're describing as being lost, uh, you can kind of think about as sort of this this version of transcendence that what postmodernism is sort of characterized by is sort of a radical what David Harvey calls the wallowing in the fragmented and the and the chaotic and the imminent. And so we've sort of given up on the notion of there being something transcendent or or um, uh, anything yeah sort of beyond or. Uh, and and instead we kind of recoil then into this sort of um, shallow superficial um mindset that basically says well this is all there is so i guess we just have to shop to you drop and uh you know uh basically the only value is money uh and that sort of a thing so i do think that that there's a lot of truth to that um another way of framing it that i think is also helpful which is complementary ultimately is that um what we mean by god i think changes um, in different interpretive ways of looking at the world, different worldviews. Um, I'm I've written books, and I'm currently working on one that really goes into this in some depth, which is trying to track the way that our conceptions of the sacred shift as our worldviews shift. Um, and uh, you know, I know that you do stuff in human development and sort of uh, you know that sort of thing. And uh, so I, there's a there's a big component to that that plays into this um, the way that people and societies develop over time. And thus the way that they see the world makes sense of the world uh, and, and kind of con you know conceptualize things shifts uh, and that in the process, the, the conception of the divine, the sacred uh, in the transcendent shifts. Um, and so another way of thinking about it is to use what you were talking about, the difference between uh, Sartre and was it Augustine that you mentioned? Augustine, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is that, yeah. Um, that I would say that Augustine and Sartre have different God concepts. Um, and it's not necessarily so much that that God is what is sort of missing. It's that the is that what is taken to be God has changed. I would argue that Sartre, okay. Sartre had his mm -hmm. own God concept, you know, and it was something more like mm -hmm. truth and radical authenticity and the more kind Freedom. of imminent. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so um, it wasn't that Sartre didn't have values. He just framed those values very differently. He grounded them very differently. Uh, and that was a product of his, you know, um, his the the structure of his thought, which would have been very different than the way that uh, people in the medieval period or the high medieval period were structuring their thought. So, yeah, a slightly different way of thinking about it to bring this back to postmodernism is that um, if you kind of look at the trajectory through time of different worldviews shifting from traditional religion to modern secularism to postmodern relativism uh, and so on, it there is a loss of the God concept in one way, uh, but in in a in a different way, it's sort of a transformation of the God concept. And that can be for, you could say, for better or for worse. It creates diff different God concepts are going to then anchor societal values in different ways. Um, and we can assess, you know, whether those are pathological, salutary, what have you. But um, but but it is going to have a real shift. And so, uh, yeah, you can think of sort of the decline or the death of God, of the old traditional God, leading to the sort of 
more universal uh, truth concept that modernists were, were fond of and thinking in abstractions and absolutes and sort of laws and mechanics of nature and sort of more like a deistic kind of idea, which bleeds into kind of this, um, yeah, sort of more uh, centering of authority within the individual, et cetera, et cetera. And then by the time you get to postmodernism, that's critiquing even modernism and the modern God concept. I do think that there's a way of sort of positing that the sacred there is sort of fundamentally negative. It's fundamentally um, cr uh, critical, let's say, right? That the, the only value is sort of the ones that can uh, be suspicious, that can be doubtful and skeptical. And so you're sort of almost rendering a, a suspicion or a cynicism as your transcendent, uh, you know, source of yeah, value. Yeah, the hermeneutics of suspicion, because it's that kind of like... Uh... It's almost kind of Gnostic, like that the gods mm. are out to get you and that you're trying to uh, kind of you have to get past all of them in order to reveal what's kind of at the bottom of things. But yeah. the idea that there's the hermeneutics of suspicion kind of implies that there is a truth somewhere mm. uh, like that as you peer back the layers of illusion that it does imply that there's some reality. But the postmodernism, as I understand it anyway, seems to deny reality like the mm. idea that it's all language games that mm -hmm. there is no um objective reality and therefore you know truth is subjective yeah. it's all appearance right um it, it becomes hard to justify the hermeneutics of suspicion if there is no yes i I, I think you're exactly right and i think that you know if you really want to kind of dig deep into this stuff i think what you're naming is sort of getting at the the deep logic that is what changes uh, the worldviews. Um, so, you know, Hegel is a philosopher. He talked about dialectics, right? And he looked at history and how, how history changes and moves. And he was looking for sort of the logic of why does history do what it, what it does. Um, and he called this, you know, the dialectics of history, uh, the, the, the back and forth that leads to, you know, new things, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, and so on, though he didn't use those terms, but the, the basic idea is there. Um, I think similarly, uh, what, what causes, and this, this links directly to actually to individual development as well, um, is that what causes change or growth is um, uh, what, what uh, Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist would call a uh, dis disequilibrization or something like that it's sort of like we're not uh we're not in equilibrium with our with our environment there's something off right and so we have to change to be more adapted to our environment and uh and so at each moment in both personal growth but also collective uh historical worldview changes you get these aspects that are like uh things are are they don't fit there's sort of a disconnect mm -hmm. and so there's this movement to try to make them fit to try to make them um to try to uh, become um, in equilibrium, basically. And so that's this driver yep. this, of change and development in, in people and in society. And so what you just named is sort of like, there's this fundamental contradiction at the heart of, of postmodernism, which is like, on the one hand, you're suspicious because you want to get to this deep truth that's really there. But ultimately, that leads you to this conclusion that there is no truth. And so it winds up sort of eating itself. And then it's like, well, this is a contradiction. How does this resolve itself? And then that's what leads to what comes after. That'd be one way of thinking about it. People like uh, Ken Wilber have talked about the per performative contradiction of postmodernism, which is sort of like anytime anyone says, you know, there is no truth. Well, that's a truth claim. So it contradicts yeah. itself, right? <laughs> so if you start digging into these sorts of things, it does create a kind of dynamic tension that like forces itself to resolve itself. And then you you get something different. So um, yeah, I, that would be one kind of more philosophical way of answering it. I think historically, there are all sorts of reasons why po some postmodernists are sort of radical relativists and other ways they're not. In some ways, people are calling them relativists when they're not actually relativists. And there's a whole uh, interesting sort of, reception history to uh postmodern thought uh and so and I, I i recently was talking with um a really great thinker named jason josephson uh, uh no jason ananda josephson storm who wrote a a, a book really good called metamodernism the future of theory trying to look at what comes after postmodernism and um and one of the major themes that we kind of kept coming back to was that a lot of the times what we're what we're talking about is is um something that's sort of been constructed, uh, but isn't really the thing, if that makes sense, right? Like if you were to actually read, uh, let's say Foucault and Derrida and all these other people who are kind of considered archetypal postmodernists, 
And if you try to find in them the sort of radical relativism or this sort of, you know, uh, anti-realism or what have you, uh, you actually don't find it. So there's this weird thing where it's like, well, wait a second. Isn't this supposed to be kind of quintessential postmodernism? And yet, so things get canonized and they get um, talked about in ways that in some ways, when you go looking for them, you don't find them in the source material. And just to bring this back to how we started and what I was saying up front, a lot of the conversation about postmodernism can be very uh, uh, ungrounded and a bit confusing because of that. Um, you know, and the last thing I'll say mm -hmm. briefly about that is, um, you know, Jordan Peterson has done a lot of uh, work to foreground the problematic nature of postmodernism. Uh, uh, but at the same time, he'll say things like the postmodern neo-Marxists. But if you kind of really kind of break that idea apart, it's sort of like, well, wait a second, Marxists are, you know, they have this vision of there truth and they have values. Of... Yeah, exactly. There's a whole grand narrative there. And the postmodernists are sort of, and so how can you be a postmodern neo-Marxist? Um, it's sort of a contradiction of terms. And, uh, again, I, I think that it's a very complex issue. There's contradictions built into it. There are ways that we're talking past each other when we when we're using these different terms. Uh, so anyway, I'll, I'll I'll close that there. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of thinking. I mean, what I'm I suppose getting at a little bit is that is there a kind of perennial question here to an extent? Because you see a lot of the same problems coming up in Plato's Republic or mm. these questions of like human nature of our ability to actually access truth to mm -hmm. perceive the world and obviously Plato's solution to that is the good I love Verbeke's formulation of that as you know the continually held wedding of intelligibility and reality that mm. is at the bottom of rationality and mm. empiricism and science because mm. we can't justify those things unless we have this connection so I kind of wonder <laughs> to an extent is it just like they've rejected Plato and the good and then you end up with this other philosophy that's the result of taking that away. They've played that out. And now we've kind of hit the point where we're like, okay, we've hit the wall. We're going to, we got to go the other way. Oh, <laughs> like man. it's this kind of opposites from opposites. Yeah. I'm loving these questions. I can tell you're a philosopher because like, yeah, this is, these are like <laughs> big questions. So uh, a couple of things. I mean, yeah, like on the one hand, right. Whitehead said that all Western philosophy is just a footnote to Plato. Uh, so in some sense, everything that we're talking about, you know, you can read Plato and find some little breadcrumb in there that's already getting at these things. Um, there's also, I'm reminded of a book called uh, The the Cave in the Light. I forget the author's name, but it it, um, it was a pretty uh, well-received book. And I think it won some pretty prestigious rewards, but it's really cool. It follows sort of the, the tension between uh, Plato and Aristotle and the kind of, the kind of, uh, fundamental kind of kinds of philosophy and sort of tracks the legacies of those all the way up to the present time. And you can kind of see the, again, it's a sort of dialectic, right? Back and forth. Um, Plato being a bit more transcendent and Aristotle being more imminent and mm -hmm. this going back and forth through history. And uh, you can see that all the way up to the, the present time. Um, so in it, basically, yes, I mean, these are perennial issues. And um, and again, as also Storm mentions in his book, and I think it's a good point, is that skepticism is nothing new. Um, you know, it's an ancient philosophy, right? I mean, it goes all the way back. Um, and, uh, and so in some way, these questions have been dealt with or explored by various thinkers uh, in antiquity as well. I think what's different and there is a lot different, so I'm not equating them. One of the things that's particularly different is the the, the dominance, uh, the cultural dominance, let's say, that they that mm. these ideas um, have, right? So, like skepticism in the ancient world might have been a sort of small band of you know uh, philosophers, um, but uh, today it it is sort of the the in in the form of the postmodern academic paradigm, it is like it is what runs the academy. Uh, which is interesting thing, right? Because you know Plato kind of started the academy literally, and now today the academy is run by skeptics. So, um, so it, yeah, it's a it's a both and. It's yes, we've been grappling with these. They're deep uh, philosophical questions that deal with you know what can we know, um, what is the nature of truth, uh, you know how how do we know what to value, and and so they're they are the core ideas, you know, um, axiology and epistemology and ontology, right. Um, and for various reasons, I think the postmodern worldview is sort of represents a, a certain moment in philosophical history that characterizes, you know, end of the 20th century, um, where for lots of different reasons, both intellectual, intellectual history, social history, you know, um, 
people landed on certain answers to these questions that became culturally dominant. And, and now that's shifting. I think that there's a, there's a paradigm shift underway. And so we are getting past that moment and into something else, which I think is good because it is, it, it, you know, say what you will in, in defense of it, it was a problem and it caused many problems, aesthetic, moral, uh, you know, spiritual, et cetera. And um, so I'm very excited by this, this, this change that's, that's, that's underway. Yeah, I, that's a hundred percent. And that was the next place. I think um, we we got to go in this conversation is, you know, what is the next, what is metamodernism? Um, what's the next phase of this? Yeah. Well, and it's a, you know, big question again, and it's, it's one that I struggle with a little bit because um, there are different ways you can tackle this, this issue, right? You can, I'm, I'm always sort of inclined to give something like a historical account of like, where does this word come from and how have different meanings been added to or layered on top of it? Um, because I don't want to obscure any of the uh, the complexity and the diversity that already exists in a term like metamodernism. Um, at the same time, those kinds of accounts can be really boring for people, especially who have never even heard of this thing. So uh, I won't do that. Um, so I'll try to I'll try to kind of go halfway in all of that. Um, the basic idea of metamodernism is uh, if you yeah take up this notion that there's this academic and cultural paradigm that we've been calling postmodernism. It was characterized by skepticism, cynicism, um, and this hermeneutics of suspicion, et cetera. Uh, and that now culturally, historically, and intellectually, we're sort of seeing a change away from that to a paradigm shift that um, approaches these kind of profound philosophical questions in different ways in light of new ways of thinking, new technologies, new ways of being in the world. Um, you know, uh, that is sort of what broadly we're talking about uh with metamodernism so it's a uh, it's it is a um you can call it a period because it's a historical period or you could call it a paradigm uh you could call it a, a, a um a, it's a stage you could some people view this in terms of developmental uh you know terms again however you want to call it, i think that uh it's a bit of a i don't know it's a bit of an expensive word but like uh, epistem is a is a word that Foucault coined to talk about like a way of knowing. Some people talk about it that way. Um, I'll I'll use the word worldview or zeitgeist just because I feel like those are pretty tangible for people. Um, but it's a it's a worldview and a zeitgeist that has been emerging since the dawn of the uh, of this millennium, uh, since the early two thousands. Let's say that first shows up in culture with these new films and art and uh, and 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 you know, cultural production that doesn't really fit with the old postmodern uh, rubric. Uh, and so people the, who, who were looking at culture were like, hey, what is this stuff? You know, what is Wes Anderson? This isn't, this is not this sort of like old cynical stuff that we are used to seeing. There's something very kind of tender and uh, almost saccharine about this kind of, you know, sweetness, but it's not naive either. It's also got this sense of, you know, oh, they know what they're doing, but they're still doing it anyway, sort of a thing. Or, uh, you know, what do we make of this music that is so earnest um, and so sincere? Uh, this is not Kurt Cobain. This is not Radiohead. You know, this is not the cynicism. This is this is people bearing their hearts and being, you know, open and yet doing so in a way that, again, they, it's not naive. They're, you know, they, they know that that they're being earnest and sincere. So, um, yeah, these cultural theorists were like, well, this is this new sensibility. It's a new uh, structure of feeling. And so they called it metamodernism. And um, and I think that as often happens with worldviews and paradigm shifts, things show up first in the arts. Um, so since then, uh, since like the 2010s, for example, we've seen this broader zeitgeist worldview shift and, and grow in other parts of culture. Uh, now it's in philosophy. I mentioned Storm's work. He's a metamodern philosopher. Um, I think this corner of the internet that we are a part of um, and the people that's that what I was going to ask you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The wisdom web and oh, this yeah. corner of the internet. Do you think that's a big part of it? Oh, hundred percent. I mean, just the very fact of it, right. Is that like, it's cool to be interested in wisdom, right? Like that this is inconceivable 20 years ago. Um, you know, if, if you were like, Hey, I want to know what it means to live a good life. You would have been laughed out of the room if you were hanging out with a bunch of postmodern punks. Right. Uh, there's something now where it is uh, it's punk to be, to be wise, right? <laughs> it's um, yeah, which yeah. is a very strange sentence. I know, I know. I agree. And it's um, and it's it's. I think why it's been so compelling and successful, uh, because again, it's not just presenting like a hey, we need to go back to traditional 
wisdom and traditional values or whatever, right? Because postmoderns were dealing with that all the time. They're like, hey, you're just old hat, you're old school, right? We're the new thing. But when you can actually be like, yawn, I'm bored of all this postmodern stuff. We get it. Things are problematic. We get it. We need to be critical. Yeah. Let, all right. Now what? Right. Then it's like, well, they don't have anything to say to that and they have nothing to offer. Um, so I think the people now who are trying to offer things, who are trying to speak to, you know, what does truth look like after all this deconstruction and critique? What is religion and God and faith and divinity and the sacred look like after all this questioning and doubt and deconstruction? Uh, what do things look like on the other side of nihilism, right? You know, once you've once you've looked into the abyss, right, then something's going to come after that. And uh, so these are the questions that metamodernists are asking. And, you know, the people in this scene, I think um, they, they they get that they're, they, they've done that other stuff. And it's sort of like, OK, but, but what's on the other side? And that's why I think, again, just to mm. reemphasize, it's so important that we understand that this thing is about going beyond after postmodernism of not just sort of, oh no, scary nihilism. Oh no, you know, what if our what if our ideas about truth and value aren't real? Oh no, I can't deal with that. Let's go back to something more comfortable and familiar. It's like, okay, nope. Deconstructed, experience the nihilism, experience the vertigo and confusion clawed my way up, looked at all these other things, tried to integrate the various insights of all these different traditions and, and integrated the insights of these postmodernists and the modernists and the traditionalists. And now what do we get? You know? So anyway, yeah, yeah. that's um, kind of a throwing everything at the wall answer to that question. Yeah, but it's a hopeful one. Um, and it's definitely something that you can see in the air a little bit. I think that's a very good example in terms of seeing it in the the changes in the music and stuff, and then coming in, I think the internet has probably played a big role in it, yeah, but arguably, sure. I think a lot of the mechanics that have been built into the internet are very relativistic. Mm. They're not necessarily, um, I mean, it. my work on social media, that social media has its own value system. It has a hierarchy of goods and, you know, attention mm. is the most prized thing. And I think by accident, maybe the wisdom web has come about through people seeking it. I don't know if the technology is optimized for that or mm -hmm. helping in it. And yeah. maybe it's perpetuating. I, I think it's just kind of amplifying whatever's there. But um, I wonder, I suppose, how do you see the internet in playing a role in metamodernism? Do you think it helped bring it about? Yeah, no, definitely 100%. Um, because, I mean, in my own experience, you know, it was like, before the internet, I felt like, I just felt very isolated. I was like, ah, I'm, I see these things. I feel these things. I have these ideas, but it was very hard to find other people who like got that. Um, and so it, every, I, it felt like there probably were other people out there, but we were all very siloed. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, for good and for ill, right. The internet has been this, a tool that's allowed people uh, with maybe different kinds of perspectives than the than the mainstream dominant one to find each other and to come together and form communities and then feel this momentum and then it just and then sort of shift the the gravity. Um, I think that's been huge. I think um, I mean a whole the whole media landscape has shifted. I don't think people really fully get this yet. Uh, but like, yeah. you know, what where are people getting their information? I mean, people are just they're listening to podcasts. And they're they're obviously finding things online, uh, and uh, and there's a you know social media yes, and so the and people are able to you know uh, publish to self publish and things like this. So there's been this mm -hmm. huge uh, change in in where we get our information, and um, you know yeah that again has brought both good and ill. Uh, so it's yeah. it's been a kind of democratizing element that's getting getting more out there. Um, Every time, though, I do feel like, oh, wow, this metamodernism thing, this is like, this is really catching on. I'll look and I'll see this other YouTube channel that's like, um, you know, just a guy who walks around old towns meandering, just sort of pointing the, the camera wherever. And he's got like 170 million followers. And I'm like, what does this even mean? Or, you know, any name, name your subculture where you go and you're like, oh, wow, this is not good. And then it's like, OK, well, there's 80 million people there. And then I'm like, well, my little channel's chugging along with, you know, 3000 people, whatever. So it it, it kind of puts things in perspective. But, uh, you know, yeah, yeah, I guess in in classic metamodern mode, that's my cynical angle. And yet I'm still very, uh, very hopeful and uh, excited about, mm. you know, where this is all going. So I think the Internet's been huge in, in that regard. Um, 
there are a couple other angles to that uh, that um, I could I could talk about, but the, that's certainly the most kind of you know mm-hmm. uh, most obvious. One yeah, sure. no, I I I hundred percent agree. I think that is the has given a because I myself personally as well felt very similarly grown up. I talk about it a lot on this podcast, but grown up as a secular person, my parents raised me without religion in Ireland and a predominantly Catholic kind of like in the nineties, it was like 98% of people were Catholic in Ireland pretty much, um, or were at least religious. So it was mm-hmm. quite unusual. And, and that definitely fostered a lot of nihilism, a lot of kind of alienation mm-hmm. quests through philosophy to try and put that back together a little bit. But really the internet was what kind of plugged that Jordan Peterson's kind of mm-hmm. hero meta mythology. I was very into young before that. And then kind of for work on the meaning crisis and that mm-hmm. stuff, but it's really been the overcoming levels of alienation i think the connection to people a community of people seeking the same things yeah but also the fact that there's a value system there of say wisdom and virtue yeah and that that connects you to certain traditions as well that have gone on in terms of like neoplatonism stoicism you know aristotia i'm because previously before that i didn't understand ancient philosophy i'm a big fan of pierre Hadot, like philosophy mm. is a way of life mm-hmm. um that for me feels quite like the change from postmodernism as well, where it's like philosophy isn't just about these propositions. It's mm. about how we live and that there's actually uh, some payoff to the way of life that you choose. Um, and that people are kind of perhaps on the internet exemplifying new ways of life um, yeah. that are meaningful um, that we can pursue. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that, you know, the, so these terms that Verveke uses, for example, like uh, the meaning crisis and wisdom famine, um, I think that the cultural situation that postmodernism left us in was was basically that it was sort of like, uh, you know, uh, we it, it engendered. You can see very clearly, you know, a a response then to like, okay, you know, how then shall we live, sort of a thing. Um, and I think probably that was probably, you know, pervasive even before you had these technologies that could connect people around these questions. Um, but there just wasn't a critical mass that that could really come out. Um, and so I think, yeah, there's just been a sort of shift in sort of cent- uh, centers of power and centers of uh, information distribution, basically, that it's sort of like now we don't all need to go to the postmodern academy to get you know, our heads filled with some kind of ridiculous knowledge that they think that they're dispensing. Um, you know, as as far as I'm concerned, I mean, more education is going on online than than what you're going to get right now in the uh, in the official academy. And I, I don't think that um, I don't. Yeah, again, I don't think that that's fully understood, certainly by the academy itself yet. Uh, uh, so I think that that's been that's been huge. Um, and I feel it. I mean, you know, just the fact of being part of these communities has been really life enriching for me. Um, and, uh, to be able to like connect with people in this, in this way has been, yeah, just deeply meaningful. I think that's one of the kind of the ironies of it is that, uh, the whole process of people coming together over the issue of meaning has become the container for meaningful engagement, right? Meaningful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. That's yeah, exactly. And, I you touched on it there. I mean, your recent uh, talk at the Consilience Conference um, with Greg Enriquez, um to talk about you had your talk was on meaning, um, but also information and meaningful information. So, you know, I wanted to ask you, you know, what is information and how how does it connect to meaning? Well, what is information is a question that I've come to realize. Uh, I don't think anyone has a very good answer for. It's actually an incredibly philosophical question. Um, and I've found as I've done a lot of this research that when you really probe deep into like the the fundamental first principles of physics, um, they, they're philosophical questions. Um, and so uh, yep. people usually start then like a level, one level up at least before the really deep questions, like what is energy? You know, what is information? These sorts of things, right? And somehow these are deeply entwined, right? But no one really knows how. Um, so I don't think I can answer the question, like the philosophical question, what is information? Um, we work with uh, with um, kind of heuristics that seem to be, uh, you know, <laughs> meaningful. They seem to be effective. Uh 
in 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 science. Uh, so um, you know, as we probe deeper into these things, I'm sure uh, you know things will the plot will will thicken even more. Uh, and just to touch on that briefly, right? Because information, for example, there's something con connoted in that idea uh, that there's some sense of like there's there's an observer or there's some kind of interpreter, let's say, right? So questions about information and then the role of an interpreter are very profound, deep ones that um, information theory just you know kind of like no, we're not going to go there, and um, and science in general is just sort of like you know, you can start to employ things like certain interpretations of quantum uh, theory or quantum mechanics to think of like, well, are there interpreters at the fundamental levels of reality, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, kind of not going there per se, but just working with the kind of scientific heuristics that are um, useful and uh, and are sort of at the closest we can get to first principles. Um, yeah, you have, um, my talk was about meaningful information um, in the sense that um, some complexity scientists have been able to develop this idea. Um, and I'll back up a little bit and just say, yes, I'm one of these people in this scene who is very interested in the question of meaning. Um, I, it's it's kind of obsessed me, you know, probably, well, since at least my first big existential crisis, um, but really all the way back uh, into probably early adolescence, I've just always been very consumed with questions of ultimate concern and meaning and this sort of a thing. And um, and I actually think of a lot of the religious and spiritual questions we ask as being framed uh, by, uh, you know, there's sort of, there are questions about meaning in some ways. There's kind of a deeper lens to all that. So anyway, all that is sort of background. Um, I wanted to kind of think like, well, what is what is meaning, right? You know, like we have an intuitive sense of this as people, but what does this really mean? Can you trace this back? And so uh, there are these um, complexity scientists who are framing meaning uh, in terms of the information that an entity can process that's uh, that aids its viability. So you could say at a thermodynamic level, um, just at the level of energy, you know, for things to resist entropy, they need energy um, to push back against that entropy. And we know that there's this deep correlation between energy and information, um, meaning, again, and trying to unpack that would be a little bit too much for this context, but it relates to information theory and people like, uh, you know, Claude Shannon and, and a lot of the stuff that's been done in complexity science linking these two um, phenomena in very fascinating and, and still kind of mysterious ways. Um, but basically, entities exist in contexts and environments, and uh, and in order to persist and to not fall apart in the face of entropy, they need to gain energy uh, from their environment, basically. And so they're going to need information about their environment in order to do that. And at, a, at the crudest, most basic sense, the information that allows an entity to acquire the energy, let's say, that it needs to persist that information is meaningful to that entity. So basically these definitions allow us to define meaning intrinsic to a relationship. Um, and for people who are familiar on your channel with the work of John Verveke, this plays in directly uh, with some of his theories about relevance realization, right? That we are in transjective yeah. relationships. And so what is relevant to us is always going to be contextually sort of defined. We're always navigating and adjudicating that in context. Um, but anyway, to try to bring all this to a point of like, well, why is this meaningful uh, or important? Um, what I'm really interested in is tracking how meaning itself complexifies uh, through really cosmic history. If you want to take a kind of a deep time or big history approach to to things, um, then, you know, which I think is sort of our contemporary mythic mode, right? I mean, people in the past were interested in origin stories and cosmologies. They wanted to know where we come from and why things are the way they are and why do why do we believe what we believe and what's meaningful. Um, and I think in a contemporary context, uh, we need to do that with situating ourselves in the big picture, in the big scheme of, of history. Uh, so uh, trying to go back basically 13.8 billion years and trying to locate ourselves in the big scheme of things. Um, so uh, if you think about, you know, this basic idea of meaning as as that which uh, allows an entity to be viable and to flourish within its context, you can trace that idea as the complexification of the universe unfolds. 
um, you know, from just matter to life and to animals and into people. Um, by the time you get to people, you know, you've got symbolic language and you've got all these, um, you know, social relationships and dynamics, et cetera. It's, it's a very rich, uh, but very complex thing going on. And you can see how these different layers of meaning have been stacked on top of each other over billions of years as, as this kind of cosmic evolution has unfolded. Um, so that was what my talk at the Consilience Conference was sort of about, is just laying out some of these ideas. Um, and it's also the topic of this book I'm writing at the, at the present moment, which is called The Evolution of Meaning. Um, and... I guess the last thing I'll say about that is it all this does actually in a weird way relate to what we've been talking about because I was going to um, say yeah it yeah, does come it comes back around it comes full right. circle because by the time you go mm. from you know matter to life to mind to culture then culture itself is complexifying and developing and through that dialectical process we were talking about and unfolding through worldviews and so um, my conception of the sacred is that thing that we experience when we are called to transcend to a higher level of complexity, right? We're like, there's something more integrated, more holistic, more coherent. Um, and it and it's gonna make me more viable. It's gonna make me flourish, right? It's gonna support, it's gonna be life affirming and enhancing. It's gonna right? inform you, like in the yes. sense of Vervakis, like it's in it's forming you. Yes, yeah, 100 percent Not everything can do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and then and then this gets uh it allows us to think about how what we mean by things like foolishness or folly and wisdom, right? It allows us to understand, well, what's the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Uh, what is meaning and, and, and nihilism, right? And, and it's not an accident that when you're engulfed in despairing nihilism, you lose the will to live. You aren't, you're losing viability. You're, you've lost intention. You're not called to do things. You have no purpose. You, you're not being moved in a direction, right? So your whole teleological thrust in the world is sort of obliterated. And at like a, at a, at a, at a level that is both biological and even thermodynamic, uh, you can say that that's sort of entropic, right? You've sort of, you're breaking down. And so and this is kind of like a little bit more of a Nietzschean way of thinking about this sort of thing, right? But that, that, when you feel called to fullness, um, when you feel called to that, that you're you're able to to be more than who you have been. You know, you're able to grow. You're able to develop. You're able to um, expand your horizons. You're able to do more things, um, etc. You're able to understand more and and to have a greater can. Um, these are intuited as being not just valuable and meaningful, uh, but sacred. And and the last thing I'll say, because I've been talking for a bit, is that um, I see this as relating very much to the how evolu the evolution of religion has unfolded in our God concepts in terms of uh, you know how we think about the divine and the sacred um, and 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 God uh, and how that can be tracked through the evolution of culture um, and a, a, as it's complexified has sort of become uh, the sort of spears tip or the, you know, the nice edge of complexification of cultures to be able to access greater levels of um, capacity and enhancement and viability and flourishing. Um, and so uh, in that sense, you know, um, religion is part of the human story. Spirituality is an intrinsic part of being alive and being, you know, uh, a, a meaningful actor in the world or something like that is, I guess I'd say it. So anyway, that's, yeah. There is uh, so much there, Brendan. To start. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, no, I mean, there's, and there's something about it as well that the meaning, I mean, to go back to the postmodern idea, which is that meaning is grafted onto the world in a sense. It's projected mm. onto the world. It's something we make up. And there's a hopeful way of looking at that, like Camus, Sisyphus rolling the boulder up the hill, mm. pretending to be happy. Or there's a more desperate side of it which is that you no know, nothing matters it's all falling apart mm. what really changed that for me was the idea that meaning isn't it doesn't work that way it's mm. things present themselves as meaningful to us and mm -hmm. a massive part of my research is through attention and are on attention and the more i've looked at attention the more i realized that so much of what draws our attention inadvertently is what's considered meaningful to us. Sometimes mm. it's not good, but mm. it you can't argue your way out of that in a sense because it's drawing your attention. Yeah. You're, you're defining it as more significant than everything else. Anyway, it's a attention is a valuing process. And Verveke talks about obviously relevance realization being 
a valuing judging process, which yeah. is beneath the information processing in you're, you're judging that that information is worth processing. Um, and realizing that was like, wow, okay, so value is this intrinsic thing. I, the word transjective is used mm. a lot, mm -hmm. that it's not just a, a product of the mind that we're yeah. painting onto stuff, yeah. um, but it's a real relationship and yeah. a real relationship with the world. Um, and that that kind of, you yeah. know, opens up a whole different reality. Basically. Yeah, 100%. I agree. I Similarly, uh, my, my own arc, uh, my journey with the idea of meaning has shifted a lot, you know, from something like meaning is bestowed by God. You know, I have meaning because God was created by God and the world was created by God. It's sort of a given, right, uh, to the critique, the doubt of that. And it's like, oh, actually, no. There is no meaning. Nothing has any meaning. And that's just a projection. And we invent it to something like that more existentialist, you know, oh, but we can create meaning and that sort of a thing to now this perspective of like, no, meaning emerges through the dynamic interrelationship of entities in their environments in a real way. And it's not that I'm projecting and it's not that it's a given. It's that these things co-arise in relationship to you know, uh, yeah, the, the, the flourishing and the viability of, of, and also just, that it's, yeah. it's optimal is the other really interesting mm. thing. I mean, I'm a big fan of like Csikszentmihalyi's book flow and his mm. kind of positive psychology where you're essentially talking about, and Verveke makes the point as well, that the flow state is a very meaningful state to be in. Like mm. you're not thinking about like, oh, is this good? Should I be doing it? Like you're, you're in it and it's yeah. highly salient. It's highly, but it's also optimal. So it's where we're performing at our best. Yeah. It's at the kind of edge of our competence, the border of order and chaos and kind of mm -hmm. Peterson's idea where he has the yin and yang. And that's where the kind of yep. that's where the meaningful attention is drawn. And that's a very different world than the the other one, I think. Yeah. And and that for me, hopefully, is like the metamodern world in the sense that we we're living in the world again rather yeah. than this kind of disembodied intellect. No, I think that I think that's very true. And I think that in some ways, that is one of the uniting aspects of a lot of people in this sort of uh, milieu is, uh, is, a, is a shared appreciation of that. Um, and I think you can think about that in terms of the worldview shift, right? Uh, at, at what my own personal journey that I just relayed is I think something of the, the intellectual history that um, that has been underway uh, for the past, you know, 1000 years, right? Um, and even longer, which is, yeah, I think that in traditional religion, you were granted meaning as a given. Um, and then I think you, there's a version of that, even in the kind of modern way of thinking about things uh, that sort of like, oh, well, things have sort of a, there's, there's a truth about things like there's an objective truth, right? And then the postmodernists come along and like, there's no objective truth. And they totally deconstruct that idea. Uh, and, you know, the postmodernists want to say, we just, yeah, we're, we are framing the world through our own mind and that is our truth. And so everyone has their subjective truth, right? So if you want to think about the, the traditional to modern view is sort of like there is some truth, whether it's absolute or objective. And then the postmodern is sort of like, it's all subjective. Well, when you put those together and you make a nice synthesis of that, you get this transjective truth where you see that there's truth to both of those ideas, right? Mm -hmm. There That it's not just that we project everything, but it's not either the case that, you know, it's a given. So in some ways, it's like Plato and Kant were both right, uh, but you got to put them both together and something uh, that'd be one way of, of thinking about it. Yeah, because I'm thinking, I mean, what what's kind of going off my head is the problem of perception, the kind of split philosophy so much was like, how do we actually perceive the world? Um, I haven't read a lot of James J. Gibson, but I've heard Verveke talking about him in terms of this idea that what we're perceiving is information in the world, mm. real difference. Um and the idea that we can perceive information is the idea that we can perceive reality on some level. Mm -hmm. um, whether it's perfect or not is a different story. But um, I think that's a big difference from the postmodern story as well, which is like where this kind of nominalist, everything's disconnected mm -hmm. from what it is. Yeah. You know, it's just a collection of atoms or something and there's right. no real object. There's no, right. And therefore then, you know, the subject is just this weird kind of in the head uh, I think therefore I am. So yeah. yeah, it is it's it's so radical the the transformation, but it's very non-propositional, I think, in a way. 
Do yeah, I mean, you can you can frame it propositionally, but I do think you have to. There is some inexperiential quality. It's a metanoia almost. Yeah, I think um, that there's that that's yeah. There's there's truth to that. You have to have experienced that shift, and I think you also have to have experienced. It's like a gestalt shift, you know, or it's sort of like, is it the mm. duck or is it the rabbit? In some ways, you have to appreciate that it's uh, both simultaneously before you get what the whole gestalt shift thing is, right? So, like, I think that's sort of philosophically what we've been going through intellectual in our intellectual history is sort of like, you know, oh, it's a duck. No, it's a rabbit. And then it's like, oh, no, it's an optical illusion. And they're both simultaneously defining each other, right, in terms of each other. Um so, yeah, and I, I I think that, I mean, that really does mark a profound paradigm shift in the way of thinking about reality. And it's not just that um, it's more true, it's that it, it is, it's more optimal and helpful for people uh, because- Which is quite an evolutionary perspective almost. Yeah, almost, um, yeah. No, it is. I mean, it's, 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 we were, you could almost say there's a, a maladaptive perspective in the postmodern you know, assumption about, uh, you know, reality. And um, and now we've corrected for that. The dialectic has moved forward, right? And we're like, oh, we've mm. we've got that wobble. And at the same time, you know, built into this is is you know, I think we're making real progress on on these ideas in a meaningful way. Uh, but at the same time, it's not like oh, solve that problem. You know, now we get epistemology and yeah. ontology and all. It's, it's like no, we're going to keep learning more and growing more. And it's going to be like, and now we're yeah. And I find that an exciting aspect about this worldview as well, which is it's sort of. It, it it takes as a a, a a conclusion a foregone conclusion that that nothing is a foregone conclusion or it takes as a, it's built in its own incompleteness into the system so to speak so yeah it yeah. reminds me of Brett Anderson's uh, intimations of a new worldview mm. I, I spoke to Brett a while back as well and his idea that there is there isn't a final telos which was kind of the criticism of the postmodern or the postmodern criticism that there's an end goal but mm. that the process itself is the goal to get really good mm. at the process of creative adaptation and that there are levels to that um, and that yeah. we can kind of reverse them. I mean, so um, I mentioned Piaget earlier and, uh, you know, he's very famous for being a developmental thinker. Uh, he would have called himself a genetic epistemologist. He was interested really in questions about knowledge and where it comes from. So it's sort of uh, ironic that he's, I don't know, anthologized as sort of a, a child developmental thinker, which he is, but he was doing that in service to understand these deep philosophical problems of like, how do we know what we know and that sort of a thing. And um, I think his framing of it is best, which is that um, uh, he uses the example, let's say, of like a limit in in math in mathematics or like a, an, an asymptote, right? Or take like pi, uh, 3.1415, da, 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 da. And each time you iterate that calculation, you're actually going to get closer to truth. You're going to get closer and closer and closer, right? And when you first start out and you just, it's three, you know, uh, well, that's an approximation. And then you do it a little bit, you know, and then it's 3.2 and, you know, and so on. And it's like, okay, you're getting closer. And this is how knowledge proceeds, uh, I think, in a meaningful way, which is, it's not this radical notion that we can't know the ultimate truth per se, uh, which I don't believe we can in that sense, in the same way that you can never calculate the entire uh, digits of pi. But every time you add a digit, you get closer and closer to truth, and you're increasing the level of resolution. Now, the world is an incredibly complex place, so there's a lot of resolution that you know remains to uh, come into view, let's say, or to be clarified. But um, I think thinking about it in that way can be helpful um, as sort of a middle ground between, um, you know, some, I, I found it really interesting, um, that some people have embraced the idea of science as being all about asking, asking questions. Um, and I'll see these little articles that will pop up and they'll say, you know, oh, scientists are really sad. It's a tragedy. Oh, why? What happened? They're like, the standard model was further confirmed. And I'm like, wait a second, the standard model of physics is like this incredibly successful model of reality, and we have more evidentiary you know, support for it. Wouldn't physicists be happy because like they're getting closer to truth? But actually, no, they're sad because it doesn't give them new questions to ask. And therefore, they don't have, get a new discovery. They don't have a new optimized for innovation. And they, exactly. And they don't get, you know, a, a new field to open up for there to be new academic scientists, et cetera. And it, it's a kind of warped way of thinking about knowledge creation. If we're just, if we valorize the process itself at the total expense of what the process is for, 
right? And we can warp the same thing in the other direction of totally focusing on the goal and every movement even just slightly closer to it as long as it's not the goal is a failure, right? These are two extreme ways. And so I prefer something a little bit more in the middle, which is that we we can get closer to the truth, uh, but we should enjoy the ride as well, right? It is about the process and the goal, but we have to have both of them uh, at the same time, I think. And that it increases kind of your own, I suppose, a character, but also that your your degrees of autonomy to a certain extent, I think, within a yeah. constrained framework, but it affords you more insights it affords you more ways of adapting to problems yeah and there's an intrinsic pleasure in that i think in becoming more competent at those type of things and 100%. i want to put you on the spot a little bit here which is how does god figure into that because you had mentioned it briefly <laughs> i know we don't have another two hours right, but right, uh, right. I, i'm thinking of like leaving the cave and you have that the iterative process of adjusting to the light. Mm. And then you have the experience of the good, which is the sun. You can't look at it or mm -hmm. really see it, but just the knowledge or the knowledge that comes from that transformation indicates that there's something higher. Yeah. And yeah. that, that knowledge, which is kind of maybe questionable as knowledge. Like, do you really know you've, mm. you've had this experience, but that experience changes you. And then you can try and orient other people to it. But I wonder, does that, is that a fitting endpoint for yeah um, well of course yeah um yeah uh i mean the there there there's a lot of there's a lot of a lot of ins and outs to this case mod as the big lebowski would say you know uh it's got a um so in brief i think what i would say is that i've i've always been attracted to at every stage of my sort of own faith journey the image of God as, uh, you know, the mystery, let's say, right? That there's this, and, and you find this, you know, certainly both in the traditional accounts, but in the, certainly the mystical accounts and, um, and kind of everywhere in between, that there's a sense that, um, that the divine is this uh, fullness, overfullness of meaning. It's just this like, you know, icon into more, you know, this, uh, ever, you know, in, in Neoplatonism, right, there's the, the overflowing that causes the emanations, right? It's just that the, the one is so overfull with itself, right? But um, that there's this fullness or the pleroma, the richness of the mystery. And um, I think that that works at every level um, because there's always more to be discovered. Um, and I think if you're using the framework that I'm finding the most uh, helpful at the moment, what, which I was talking about, right, which is that the sacred is what calls us to transcend our own current perspective to something more comprehensive, more inclusive, more complex, that brings in more of reality, right? Um, then what you're doing is you're, 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 you're kind of engaging more of the sacred, uh, I'm sorry, of the mystery. You're engaging more with uh, what was unknown. Um, and there's this sense in which that mystery is simultaneously both this full richness of perfection, but also this like unformed chaos of the void that, it, that there's somehow this dynamic relationship between those two. Um, and again, Jordan Peterson talks a lot about these dynamics of order and chaos, right? But complexity is the is the synthesis you could say of order and chaos that edge you know that, that the edge of critical or the uh yeah the, the the you know the um what's that called uh the edge of critical or the critical you know edge of chaos sort of idea right is that there's there's a you need enough um lack of regularity in a system for it to be informationally rich but too much lack of informational uh, regularity will lead to equilibrium and randomness. So complexity is this middle ground that we're sort of like carving out of the chaos of the void. Um, and you can think about the mystery, I think, in some ways like that. Now, is God the complexity that is turning chaos into intelligible order? Is God the totality of that whole process, including the order and the chaos? Um, I'm starting to, you know, let the question run away from me a little bit here, but I guess what I'm getting at is that, um, my sense of this is that when I think about how the role that God plays in all this is that God is our sort of placeholder 
or that thing that is transcendent to us, that lies beyond our ken, that we can aspire to and that we seek to transcend towards. And as we do, we gain greater viability, greater agency, greater uh, enhanced capacity and understanding. And we've come to grasp a bit more of, you could say, the nature of God in the process, especially if you think about God as being the totality, right? So um, as you calculate those further and further digits of pi, right? It's sort of like you're you're falling into this sort of like, <laughs> these are some symbols now, some images that I personally like to use, which is uh, there's a traditional symbol of the Empyrean uh, in Dante and Neoplatonic thought, and the one is at the center and it's the circling kind of mandala, right? Um, that there's sort of like I call this a kaleidoscopic eye, but you're you're moving further and further into the the center of the totality, and so you're progressing deeper into the mystery of things. More and more of the mystery is being revealed, you could say, um, and that is what is happening through the complexification process. It's what's happening when we transcend to a higher level. It's what happens when we grow as people, right? And we're able to take uh, vantage and scope of reality more. It happens when we gain wisdom. It happens when we enhance our viability and we're more optimally uh, fitted to our situations and to our world. Um, so yeah, I think God in some is sort of the symbolic representation that is ultimately beyond all symbolic uh, representation because there's always a God beyond God beyond God. And I think that the mystics really got that. I mean, Eckhart, you know, talked about free me from God uh, because he understood that there was the Godhead beyond God. And the last thing I guess I'll say about that is that God, while God can be that, God can also be the symbol that gets in the way of our transcendence, right? We think that we're so committed to a particular God concept because this is the truth, right? And it's almost horrific to think that that God could not be the truth. And when you experience that, you experience the death of God, but the death of God leads mm -hmm. to the rebirth of a higher order God and so on and so on. And so I think that the spiritual <laughs> you get like journey- like a meta perspective yeah, on the whole thing. Of, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that there's just this rich fecundity of God concepts waiting to be born that, and that we participate that in that as, as, we, um, as we're part of this wild ride of complexification through cosmic evolution. That was an outrageously good answer, Brendan. I really didn't know, <laughs> didn't think you were going to pull that off, but that no, was absolutely astounding. Um, yeah. And that, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there'll be a better place to end it than that, but thank you very much, Brendan. Hey, um, thank you so I much. I really enjoyed more. this. Yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and uh, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity. So thank and you. And where can people find your work? Where would you like them to go? Um, so my name is Brendan Graham Dempsey. If you go to myname.com, you can find all my stuff. Uh, I'll put all the links in the cool. description and everything as well. Awesome. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you, Brendan.